Hey everybody, this is Alex Helberg coming at you from my remote station here uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic. Just wanted to record a little something for you here today that is a little bit different from what we typically do on the show, but something that I think is nonetheless a really important exercise to be doing. Just speaking for myself, I have used some of the time spent here in quarantine when I would otherwise be out attending to other obligations, other sorts of things that uh, that would otherwise occupy my time. I'm starting to really reflect on the kinds of activities that I do by myself and in isolation and the ways that that has an effect on my overall view of the world and the way that I'm feeling about about things. I think that it's it's important to build intentional practices, especially in a time like this where we're all kind of forced to be interior, both physically, like inside of our houses and apartments and living spaces, as well as in our own minds. Uh, I mean, for a lot of us, those of us who have partners uh, and uh, spouses and and people that we're living with obviously have some social contact. But for many of us who are living alone during this kind of pandemic, I think it's important to start getting back to the kinds of practices that help us be more intentional about who we are. And I, at least speaking for myself, I've been trying to get a lot more into art and literature and going back to the kinds of things that I think really inspired me to pursue the kind of life that I have chosen to live, uh, the kinds of things that I want to do with my time, both for myself, my own self-cultivation, and for others as well. And I think that I had spent so long in rhetoric, the sort of rhetoric side of English, that I always kind of joke to my colleagues, and they, they've told me similar things that, you know, a lot of us have, at least on the rhetoric side, have not read any fiction for, you know, years, basically ever since entering into our program, because, you know, the only thing that we can focus on is, uh, is, is theory and uh, scholarly articles and things like that. But I think that it's important to go back to literature, especially in times like this, because I think that it has a lot that it can teach us, uh, particular works of literature and and authors who knew how to speak to moments of uncertainty or crisis and deliver some really important, if uncomfortable, lessons uh, during times like this. So, so I want to do a reading today from probably one of my favorite uh, Edgar Allan Poe short stories, uh, which is The Mask of the Red Death. This is a story that illustrates the chronology of a, a party that's being thrown by a, a wealthy prince who is presiding over a nation that has essentially been decimated by a plague, a made-up plague known as the Red Death, and essentially what's, what becomes of his sort of hubris of locking the gates of his abbey to which he's invited all of his illustrious friends, uh, thousands of uh, friends to come stay with him, essentially drives home the point that no amount of wealth or power can protect us from the inevitability of death, and particularly at the hands of something that we that we don't understand both from an epidemiological standpoint and from a to be honest a sociological standpoint like how this thing gets transmitted and how we're how we're reacting to it 
so I think that in in many ways it's a it's kind of the perfect short story for our time. So so I want to do a dramatic reading of this. I've I've scored it with with some original music here as well as some uh, audio flourishes uh, kind of in the style of a radio drama. And so anyway, this is just a in many ways this is also just a fun project for me to be working on during this uh during an otherwise uh, a period with a lot of downtime. So uh, I hope that you enjoy this. I I know that I'm going to have a lot of fun reading it to you and uh, performing it for you. So please here enjoy Edgar Allan Poe's short story, The Mask of the Red Death. The Red Death had long devastated the country. No pestilence had ever been so fatal or so hideous. Blood was its avatar and its seal the madness and the horror of blood. There were sharp pains and sudden dizziness, and then profuse bleeding at the pores with dissolution. The scarlet stains upon the body, and especially upon the face of the victim, were the pest ban which shut him out from the aid and sympathy of his fellow men. And the whole seizure, progress, and termination of the disease were incidents of half an hour. But Prince Prospero was happy and dauntless and sagacious, when his dominions were half depopulated, he summoned to his presence a thousand hale and light-hearted friends from among the knights and dames of his court, and with these retired to the deep seclusion of one of his crenellated abbeys. This was an extensive and magnificent structure, the creation of the prince's own eccentric yet august taste. A strong and lofty wall girdled it. This wall had gates of iron. The courtiers, having entered, brought furnaces and massy hammers and welded the bolts. They resolved to leave means neither of ingress nor egress to the sudden impulses of despair or of frenzy from within. The abbey was amply provisioned. With such precautions, the courtiers might bid defiance to contagion. The external world would take care of itself. In the meantime, it was folly to grieve or to think. The prince had provided all the appliances of pleasure. There were buffoons, there were improvisatory, there were ballet dancers, there were musicians, there was beauty, there was wine. All these and security were within. Without was the Red Death. It was toward the close of the fifth or sixth month of his seclusion that the Prince Prospero entertained his thousand friends at a masked ball of most unusual magnificence. It was a voluptuous scene, that masquerade. But first, let me tell of the rooms in which it was held. There were seven, an imperial suite. In many palaces, however, such suites form a long and straight vista, while folding doors slide back nearly to the walls on either hand, so that the view of the whole extent is scarcely impeded. Here, the case was very different. As might have been expected from the Duke's love of the bizarre, the apartments were so irregularly disposed that the vision embraced but little more than one at a time. There was a sharp turn at the right and left. In the middle of each wall, a tall and narrow Gothic window looked out upon a closed corridor of which pursued the windings of the suite. These windows were of stained glass, whose color varied in accordance with the prevailing hue of the decorations of the chamber into which it opened. That at the eastern extremity was hung, for example, in blue, and vividly blue were its windows. The second chamber was purple in its ornaments and tapestries, and here the panes were purple. 
The third was green throughout, and so were its casements. The fourth was furnished and lighted with orange, the fifth with white, the sixth with violet. The seventh apartment was closely shrouded in black velvet tapestries that hung all over the ceiling and down the walls, falling in heavy folds upon a carpet of the same material and hue. But in this chamber only, the color of the windows failed to correspond with the decorations. The panes were scarlet, a deep blood color. Now in no one of any of the seven apartments was there any lamp or candelabrum, amid the profusion of golden ornaments that lay scattered to and fro and depended from the roof. There was no light of any kind emanating from lamp or candle within the suite of chambers, but the corridors that followed the suite there stood, opposite each window, a heavy tripod bearing a brazier of fire that projected its rays through the tinted glass and so glaringly lit the room. And thus were produced a multitude of gaudy and fantastic appearances. But in the western or back chamber, the effect of the firelight that streamed upon the dark hangings through the blood-tinted panes was ghastly in the extreme, and produced so wild a look upon the countenances of those who entered that there were few of the company bold enough to set foot within its precincts at all. It was within this apartment also that there stood against the western wall a gigantic clock of ebony. Its pendulum swung to and fro with a dull, heavy, monotonous clang, and when the minute hand made the circuit of the face and the hour was to be stricken, there came from the brazen lungs of the clock a sound which was clear and loud and deep and exceedingly musical, but of so peculiar a note and emphasis that, at each lapse of an hour, the musicians of the orchestra were constrained to pause, momentarily in their performance, to hearken to the sound, and thus the waltzers perforce ceased their evolutions, and there was a brief disconcert of the whole gay company. And while the chimes of the clock yet rang, it was observed that the giddiest grew pale, and the more aged and sedate passed their hands over their brows as if in confused reverie or meditation. But when the echoes had fully ceased, a light laughter at once pervaded the assembly. The musicians looked at each other and smiled as if at their own nervousness and folly, and made whispering vows each to each other that the next chiming of the clock should produce in them no similar emotion. And then, after the lapse of sixty minutes, which embraced three thousand and six hundred seconds of time that flies, there came yet another chiming of the clock, and then were the same disconcert and tremulousness and meditation as before. But, in spite of these things, it was a gay and magnificent revel. The tastes of the duke were peculiar. He had a fine eye for color and effects. He disregarded the decora of mere fashion. His plans were bold and fiery, and his conceptions glowed with barbaric luster. There are some who would have thought him mad. His followers felt that he was not. It was necessary to hear and see and touch him to be sure he was not. He had directed in great part the movable embellishments of the seven chambers upon occasion of this great fate, and it was his own guiding taste which had given character to the masqueraders. Be sure, they were grotesque. There were much glare and glitter and piquancy and phantasm, much of what has been seen in Hernani. There were arabesque figures with unsuited limbs and appointments. There were delirious fancies such as the madman fashions. 
There were much of the beautiful, much of the wanton, much of the bizarre, something of the terrible, and not a little of what might have excited disgust. To and fro in the seven chambers stalked, in fact, a multitude of dreams. And these, the dreams, writhed in and out, taking hue from the rooms and causing the wild music of the orchestra to seem as the echo of their steps. And anon, there strikes of the ebony clock which stands in the hall of the velvet. And then, for a moment, all is still and all is silent, save the voice of the clock. The dreams are stiff frozen as they stand, but the echoes of the chime die away. They have endured but an instant, and a light, half-subdued laughter floats after them as they depart. And now the music swells, and the dreams live, and writhe to and fro more merrily than ever, taking hue from the many-tinted windows through which stream the rays of the tripods. But to the chamber, which lies most westwardly of the seven, there are now none of the maskers who venture, for the night is waning away, and there flows a ruddier light through the blood-colored panes, and the blackness of the sable drapery appalls. And to him whose foot falls on the sable carpet, there comes from the near clock of ebony a muffled peal, more solemnly emphatic than any which reaches their ears, who indulge in the more remote gaieties of the other apartments. But these other apartments were densely crowded, and in them beat feverishly the heart of life. And the revel went whirlingly on, until at length there commenced the sounding of midnight upon the clock. And then the music ceased, as I have told, and the evolutions of the waltzers were quieted, and there was an uneasy cessation of all things as before. But now there were twelve strokes to be sounded by the bell of the clock. And thus it happened. Perhaps that more of a thought crept, with more of time into the meditations of the thoughtful among those who reveled. And thus, too, it happened, that before the last echoes of the chime had utterly sunk into silence, there were many individuals in the crowd who had found leisure to become aware of the presence of a masked figure which had arrested the attention of no single individual before. And the rumor of this new presence having spread itself whisperingly around, there arose at length from the whole company a buzz, a murmur of horror and of disgust. In an assembly of such phantasms as I have painted, it may well be supposed that no ordinary appearance could have excited such a sensation. In truth, the masquerade license of the night was nearly unlimited, but the figure in question had out-Heroded Herod, and had gone beyond the bounds of even the prince's indefinite decorum. There are chords in the heart of the most reckless which cannot be touched without emotion. Even with the utterly lost, to whom life and death are equally jests, there are matters of which no jest can be made. The whole company, indeed, seemed now deeply to feel that in the costume and bearing of the stranger neither wit nor propriety existed. The figure was tall and gaunt, and shrouded from head to foot in the habiliments of the grave. The mask which concealed the visage was made so nearly to resemble the countenance of a stiffened corpse that the closest scrutiny must have difficulty in detecting the cheat. And yet, all this might have been endured, if not approved, by the mad revelers around. But the mummer had gone so far as to assume the type of the Red Death. 
His vesture was dabbled in blood, and his broad brow, with all the features of his face, was besprinkled with the scarlet horror. When the eyes of Prince Prospero fell on this spectral image, which, with a slow and solemn movement, as if more fully to sustain its role, stalked to and fro among the waltzers, he was seen to be convulsed, in the first moment with a strong shudder, either of terror or distaste, but in the next, his brow reddened with rage. Who dares, he demanded hoarsely of the courtiers who stood near him, who dares insult us with this blasphemous mockery? Seize him and unmask him, that we may know whom we have to hang at sunrise from the battlements. It was in the eastern or blue chamber in which stood Prince Prospero as he uttered these words. They rang throughout the seven rooms loudly and clearly, for the prince was a bold and robust man, and the music had become hushed at the waving of his hand. It was in the blue room where stood the prince, with a group of pale courtiers by his side. At first, as he spoke, there was a slight rushing movement of this group in the direction of the intruder, who at the moment was also near at hand, and now, with a deliberate and stately step, made closer approach to the speaker. But from a certain nameless awe with which the mad assumptions of the mummer had inspired the whole party, there were found none who put forth a hand to seize him, so that, unimpeded, he passed within a yard of the prince's person. And while the vast assembly, as with one impulse, shrank from the centers of the room to the walls, he made his way uninterruptedly, but with the same solemn and measured step which had distinguished him from the first, through the blue chamber to the purple, to the purple to the green, through the green to the orange, through again to the white, and even thence to the violet, ere a decided movement had been made to arrest him. It was then, however, that the Prince Prospero, maddened with rage and the shame of his own momentary cowardice, rushed hurriedly through the six chambers, while none followed him on account of the deadly terror that had seized upon all. He bore aloft a dagger, and had approached, in rapid impetuosity, to within three or four feet of the retreating figure, when the latter, having attained the extremity of the velvet apartment, turned suddenly and confronted his pursuer. There was a sharp cry, and the dagger dropped gleaming upon the sable carpet, upon which almost instantly afterward fell prostrate in death the Prince Prospero. Then, summoning the wild courage of despair, a throng of the revelers at once threw themselves into the black apartment, and seizing upon the mummer whose tall figure stood erect and motionless within the shadows of the ebony clock, gasped in unutterable horror at finding the grave cerements and corpse-like mask which they had handled with so violent a rudeness untenanted by any tangible form. And now was acknowledged the presence of the Red Death. He had come like a thief in the night, and one by one dropped the revelers in the blood-bedewed halls of their revel, and died each in the despairing posture of his fall. And the life of the ebony clock went out, with that the last of the gay, and the flames of the tripods expired, and darkness and decay and the red death held illimitable dominion over all. Thank you, everyone. I hope that you enjoyed that reading. Uh, I was trying to do my best to give it the dramatic flair that is almost certainly due. 
yeah, this is this has always been a particularly poignant story for me, and I think particularly now, in observing the hubris that many people are feeling in wanting to move beyond the social distancing measures that we have been under for, at the time of this recording, about two months, I think that it's an important lesson in not only... Uh, thinking about thinking about one's own privilege and the ability to cloister oneself with one's friends or whomever else in the midst of a lot of uh, death and vulnerability and and precarity that others are are facing uh, more significantly. To remember that none of us are invulnerable from this, that none of us are totally protected in this, and that I think. If there is a lesson that this story can teach us, it is not to give in to the more self-interested and hedonistic after-effects of that hubris, and it is instead to be humble in our knowledge that, that for those of us who are doing okay, we have a responsibility in one way or another uh, to our fellow people, and even if that is as simple as not going outside, as remaining in isolation or in in quarantine and, you know, taking precautions to limit contact with other people and and not spread this any further than than it is absolutely possible. I think that this is an important lesson for us to take away and that it's a reminder of the responsibility that we do have to one another and to ourselves. We are all connected in that way. And I think that of any of the lessons that that COVID has to teach, that is the biggest one. We are all truly in this together. And this is something that we are going to have to acknowledge our connectedness in order to beat. So that is the sentiment that I will leave you with. I hope that you all enjoyed this. And I hope that you're all taking care, staying healthy, Please be well, and until next time, I'll talk to you later. Our show today was produced and edited by Alex Helberg. Reverb's co-producers are Calvin Pollock, Benjamin Williams, Sophie Wadzak, and Doug Culture. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. Thanks for tuning in.